reading today from a book that's subtitled The Lexicon of Christian Arcana, and it starts with two different quotes. Historians normally recount the deeds and exploits of kings, presidents, prime ministers, secretaries, and cabinet members. In truth, the real power to choose presidents and prime ministers is not in public view, it is behind the scenes. This is a quotation from The New World Order by Pat Robertson, 1991, page 95. The current world situation has been deliberately created by this elite power, more or less by manipulation of right and left elements. We argue that the most powerful of all world elites has during the past 100 years or so developed both right and left elements to bring about a new world order. There is no question that the so-called establishment in the U.S. uses managed conflict, the practices of managing crises to bring about a favorable outcome that is favorable to the elite, is freely admitted in the literature, for example, of the Trilateral Commission. And this was a quote, America's Secret Establishment, Memorandum Number 1, by Anthony Sutton, 1984. In our modern age, we are remiss and shuddered in a state of marvelous ignorance if we imagine that the power in today's arena of international politics, religion, and banking is not concentrated into the fewest hands of influence. The right versus left political paradigm only serves to exacerbate the plight of the multitudes of people who are further exploited by unwittingly joining in the campaign of political division waged against our popular government and constitutional liberties. Thus, regardless of party affiliation, partisan activists labor all the more unconsciously against their own self-interest and unknowingly activating the dialectic process. A process of instigating internecine political self-destruction the political issues have become tools necessary for dividing the people, binding the populace against itself, and ensuring that their energies are not productive, nor are they practically effective in changing the invisible agenda of the internationalist elite, an agenda which does not account for the lives, freedoms, or rights of those living within the U.S. national borders. For many centuries, the centers of world civilization were merely dominions of princes and emperors, while the individual was never to recognize himself as more than chattel or property, and his whole existence would serve whatever end deemed necessary for the sovereign. A man's entire substance and life was merely a useful tool that might serve the interests of any given monarchy or tyrant. The idea that an individual might exercise personal liberty over one's own life, conscience, and individual freedom as an undeniable right being protected by established law is a Republican notion, a philosophical ideology that would arise out of the struggle between absolute state tyranny and the individual soul liberty. Today, in our modern world, everyone is an individual with a self-determinant existence, but in the very near recent past, there was a time when such an idea never existed. The idea of an individual's legally protected personal rights are concepts that manifested in declarations like Magna Carta, the Edict of Nantes, ideals out of which the Bill of Rights and the American Constitution would later grow and have their fullest expression. The English colonies knew very well, being Puritans and Protestant Baptists, that the struggle to become free men to maintain their political liberty and to form a free self-governing republic was conjointly a battle to politically separate from the temporal power of Rome and their puppet King George III. And because of this, we find that the founding documents ensure that no inquisitional flames or dungeons headed by the Vatican prelates would ever be established in North America. The so-called Holy Mother Church of Rome 
had long reserved for itself the right to crown monarchs and to tear down governments and kings that would not submit to the dominion, both spiritual and political, of the priests of Rome with all their pretended powers. In America, the idea of church and state as distinctly separate polemic spheres is a central pillar of this democratic republic. A protection of free religious expression as much as it is a protection against religious tyranny, which held Europe in such total darkness for many long centuries. The Roman papacy had long defended and gathered strength from the notion of the divine right of kings, and thereby monarchy and feudal lords had long ruled Europe, and it was unthinkable and traitorous to imagine that one might be freed from his psalm obligation to his earthly prince and liege lord to then become politically independent, beholden to no one except his own private prerogative and life pursuit. The notion that Europeans, subject to various crowned heads and eventually refugees, mid-Atlantic slave trade could come to America and be guaranteed equal rights under law as a free man was an indescribable, explosive philosophical development in the world of geopolitical affairs. The age of monarchical absolutism and the autocracy of religio-cultic statism instituted by centuries of bejeweled despots made legitimate by the coronation spectacle and supposed religious authority of Roman prelates and upon the backs of serfs and slaves, Rome has thrived. Romanism becomes a world empire through the myriad Islamo-Vatican conspiracies which had held the world hostage, and in 1776, that religio-political hegemony established by the occult priestcraft of Rome was finally ended by the auspices of Quakers and farming hands, farming corn, and Baptist separatists fleeing Europe with their printed Tyndale Bibles in search of a free world. America has gone to war several times with Britain, France, and Mexico, to name a few over the matter of national supremacy and the right of individuals to self-rule without capitulating to a monarchical ruler presumed to have a divine right over the lives, property, and destiny of those bound by claims of inherent servitude. Noblesse oblige was the moral thesis which allowed sensible men to allow themselves to trade and be traded as a commodity or financial asset to others who thought nothing of purchasing human beings and saw their lives as having little consequence beyond the desires of those maintaining the privilege and right to own others. The question of slavery was answered by the catastrophe of the Civil War, which had its inspirational roots not in the abolitionist movement championed by William Wilberforce in Britain, nor did it originate in the upheaval of the French struggle for liberty, but rather in the effort of European powers to divide the American Republic against itself. A crusade for conquest over heretic America, which defines the unseen agenda of the New World Order as it continues to empower the United Nations and other globalist organizations to this day. For this reason, American politics accepted no noble titles and intended that American freemen would not come to be ruled by a new aristocracy kneeling to Roman authority behind the scenes. So we have a quote over here from the Constitution. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office or profit or trust under them shall without the consent of the Congress accept of any present emolument, office or title of any kind, whatever, for any king, prince, or foreign state. Article 1, Section 9. The idea of America itself 
as the definition of world revolution, rejecting within its core doctrine the very foundations of monarchical and imperial rule, and raised the individual to the place of political sovereignty, and established the law as the bulwark of protection by which every person would be afforded constitutional rights. The central strength of a free and self-governing people was not military, but intellectual in nature. And as a free people grow less educated, intentionally dumbed down, and transformed into a nation of abject ignorance, they can no longer comprehend and maintain or defend their own hard-won political liberty. This is a subheading, Universal World Power. In modern America, a culture of ignorance prevails. Institutes of higher learning no longer raise the bar of academia and the popular perspective and intuition is directed in unison by the mass media, news networks, and internet bulletins, which necessarily inform and more importantly fail to inform the public in a practice of propaganda by omission. The power of overwhelming suggestion and political presupposition driving the public narrative provokes and maintains an ever-widening margin of division between racial, financial, and religious groups across the spectrum of American society. The mass media, as a wholly owned subsidiary and platform of the international elite, works to carry on the collective thesis that no dangers against American liberties exist, prevaricating that these regressive forces which are annihilating America's constitutional republic and the individual protections afforded by our, our creator, such as those laid out in the Bill of Rights, are somehow nonsensical and imaginative fears of paranoid fringe groups. The media continually focuses America's enormous cultural mass psychology and disperses the ideology meant to guide the carefully crafted groupthink and reinforces a soft core program of multicultural inclusiveness, agenda-driven reporting, and politically correct Catholic holiday celebrations with a new generation of generic fabricated American values progressively emerging. As author Samuel Morris points out in 1855, civil and religious liberty, the first object is to promote the greater activity of Catholic missions in America. She may be, and doubtless is, perfectly sincere in this design, for it is only necessary that she would succeed in her avowed objective to have her utmost wishes accomplished. She need avow no other aim. If she gains this, she gains all. If she succeeds in fastening upon us the chains of papal bondage, she has a people as fit for any yoke she pleases to grace our necks withal, as any slaves over whom she holds her despotic rod. This is a quote, page 46, Foreign Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States by Samuel Morris, 1855. As we shall try to investigate further, modern party politics has become a guerrilla war aimed at stripping the voter, or in this case, the American people, of any real political power. It is the subtle application of the fundamental Hegelian dialectical process. This refers to Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, 1770-1831, Germany. The Hegelian dialectical process, which have transformed the two-party political process into a mode for conflict, generation, and social turmoil. The synthetic solution to these conflicts can't be introduced unless those being manipulated taken aside they will advance a predetermined agenda. This is a quote by G. W. Frederick Hegel, quoted in The Takeover of the Public Education in America by Patrick Hoff in Chapter 3. In order to weaken one's enemies, it is necessary to create 
and maintain both sides of the conflict with which your enemies will be drawn into. The most powerful interests seek to remain undetected but deliberately fomenting populist outrage, class warfare, gridlocked political discord, which steers the ignorant populace into meaningless activism, which divides the public electorate ballot strength in half through nearly perfect scientific precision. Political polarity and societal conflict are manufactured by degrees for the purpose of maintaining popular illusions and setting forward useful propaganda for public consumption, which is the most cynical and devious form of political intrigues. The cult of political power requires constant subterfuge and evasion in the attempt to shape public perception, thereby eroding the public trust as a consequence of the ongoing and active denial of deception. Such corrupting practices and double-dealing strikes the intentionally deceived American mind as a most pernicious violation of morality, and no doubt that the highest levels of political and financial power are maintained by secrecy and conspiracy. It's not that there is no moral value in one political view as opposed to the other, but that those who are in power and who understand the process of crisis management prosecute a single agenda amid the back-and-forth conflict and confusion that arises as a result of perpetual political strife. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And while Americans are busily waging perpetual political conflict against one another, they fail to realize they are powerless in their state of division and have ceded their political sovereignty to unknown calculating forces within government. Here's a quote from Introduction to the Order by Anthony C. Hutton. More effective than outright censorship is the use of left-right political spectrum to neutralize unwelcome facts and ideas or just condition citizens to think along certain lines. The left-leaning segment of the press can always be relied upon to automatically assault ideas and information from the right and vice versa. In fact, media outlets have been artificially set up just for this purpose. Both Nation and New Republic on the left were financed by Willard Strait using Payne Whitney, who was a member of Skull and Bones, and his funds. On the right, National Review published by William Buckley, who is also a member of Skull and Bones, runs a perpetual deficit. Secret societies, fraternities, papal knights, and powerful occult networks work on both sides of the political spectrum and consider either side to be useful in furthering a unified program which is hidden beneath the guise of political wins and losses between the parties. We can clearly observe that Roman Catholics alone reign at the top of each political party, and while party affiliation may suggest that they are opponents, it is for the ignorant to be deceived since they are all members of the Church of Rome. The appearance of political conflict is a mere illusion for the public, and we must understand that the private banking interests of Europe now control our debt and our ability to print money through the Federal Reserve System. This is a well-known and demonstrable fact, which is the most important secret of maintaining political power, which is that Power is kept in balance and managed on behalf of the creditors, not the debtors. In a contrived political process, voters are merely arranged via the narrative debate around one side of the political issue or another, while remaining uninformed that the big picture agenda is gradually being achieved regardless of the debate or the particular party in power. In this way, 
all the legislative confusion, all the speeches given for appearance sake alone, and maneuvers by politicians who speak out one way and vote in Congress another way becomes a covert strategy, a confusing intrigue which altogether will slowly become sensible as you realize that a single singular itinerary of world planning is being pursued. The program of using American military and economic strength to manage the world's resources proceeds as the voting public is managed and filtered into bifurcated political fray, whereby political power is neutralized, political issues are arrayed in order to divide the population, insulating the elected officials against any meaningful organized recourse through the political process itself. If indeed there is in the United States a powerful group, this is a quote, attempting to control our world, who is it? And how did it get its start? Rest assured, there is a behind-the-scenes establishment in this nation, as in every other. It has enormous power. It has controlled the economic foreign policy objectives of the United States for the past 70 years. Whether the man sitting in the White House is a Democrat or a Republican, a liberal or a conservative, a moderate or an extremist, this power is above elections. But it has been able to control the results of elections. Beyond the control of wealth, its principal goal is the establishment of a one-world government where the control of money is in the hands of one or more privately owned government-chartered central banks. This is page 96 of The New World Order by Pat Robertson. The politics of division brings into conflict every aspect of society, pitting rich against poor, employers against employees, women against men, one race against another, Yankees versus Southerners, young voters against senior voters, etc. Every manner of political incision is applied until only divided individuals remain with no voting strength and who yield no political power. In this way, we must understand that making demands of the rich cannot fix the deep human condition of corruption and only serves to divide people against people to their own economic detriment and thus maintain establishment business as usual. It is curious that in America, the idea of the 1% or the wealthiest class has become a popular in the modern age, where an activist finds a certain irrefutable logic in asking the 1% wealthiest class of citizens to give up shares of their wealth in order to subsidize the comfort of the poor. Perhaps they fail to see the folly, unaware that the 1% wealthiest actually find in this propaganda a very, very useful tool to further internationalism indeed. And counterintuitively, they have funded many groups who espouse this variety of socialist ideology and class warfare. In America, those who look disdainfully at billionaires, decrying them as one percenters, must take this hypocritical view to their own peril, forgetting where they reside, America. Gradually, globalists have and will continue to make up this same penetrating criticism of those with financial power by those without it, offering communism to reduce the population to the lowest economic denominator of servitude. Americans themselves, who by the very fact of living in America, are transformed by the intrigue of the United Nations propaganda into global one percenters. And such will be the arguments which will introduce without end more global taxation measures, further undermining American sovereignty and independence by binding treaties. Though partisan activists in America introduced the vilification 
of the rich by those who perceive themselves to be in need or less rich, yet they fail to see that the hypothetical liquidation of the wealthiest class would only destroy the economy and destabilize the society that they themselves live in. It is the application of flawed logic in arguing against millionaires and billionaires as overabundantly wealthy and thereby tempting many to think of themselves as poor in comparison, encouraging them in their ignorance to sabotage their own financial strength, which derives from the creation of jobs. This same powerful and seemingly irrefutable article of criticism against the rich cuts both ways, and in those interested in limiting America's sovereignty and strength in favor of global governance will ask, have you ever owned a car? Or, have you ever ridden in a car? Or, have you ever earned more than $5,000 in a year? Realistically, very many people around the world may never have the opportunity to, do, to earn $75,000 in a lifetime of grinding labor. And many of them will never have an opportunity to even ride in a car. So those arguing against millionaires and billionaires in America in order to attain more government food subsidies, money stipends, or benefits have childishly failed to realize that to 90% of the people around the world, we here in America are millionaires in comparison, having opportunities and quality of life far beyond their wildest hopes and dreams. Even our poorest minimum wage workers have access to food, hospitals, and jobs, which billions of people throughout the world will never have. Basic education like reading and writing and access to television are among the most extraordinary luxuries. Though many who have those things at their disposal have not realized that there is such a common wealth in their hands. Despite our burgeoning debt, those clamoring to rob the elites and condemn the wealthiest classes have failed to see that the monetary system is based on borrowing credit and therefore merely grabbing control of the material system itself will only destabilize the lives and well-beings of millions and press the world into a crisis. Thereby, the internationalist elite would still reign over the world order even as it lay in heaps and smoldering embers. Such a crisis is indeed the end desire of those in power, and so we can easily show the communists and anarchists are widely funded by the elite power structure in as much as that the international crisis is good for business and seems to be their end game. Pretentious and radical political elements and leftists will scoff at running water and air conditioning as though we were deprived of living in trees. These political activists, in their own greed, have only looked with lust at the wealth of those who have more than they and failed to understand that the extravagant riches already at their disposal and which are perhaps wasted on them. At the time of this writing, the headlines are full of unrest created by supposed nationalist alt-right and communist Antifa agitators. And in the middle of those contrived outbreaks of violence, the American people are stirred into crisis and anarchy, an outcome that becomes the product paid for and instigated by the international banking class elite. Destabilizing the economic order of the world will only lead to widespread famine, catastrophe, and plunge further generations into the third world living standards and into a future devoid of any hope for the quality of life we take for granted in America. A quality of life never before seen in history, I might add, that has only been established and maintained by a constitutional republic designed to protect Protestant political liberty and free market laissez-faire. America has alone built such a large middle class and such a strong economy 
which comes not by government edict or leftist political fantasies, but by individual liberty protected by law. Furthermore, the question of the haves and the have-nots must lead inescapably to the greater dilemma of the human condition and of the moral fate of all mankind and the terror of life's end and its finality. Thus we are faced with a spiritual question. Is a man cursed to toil and labor all his years? Some have learned to load their labor on the backs of other less fortunate people. In so doing, they have gained much of their lifetime back and freed themselves of the daily grind while their own debts accrue towards others. While many may seek to garner wealth and power, it is merely an empty vanity unless it can be translated into greater quality of life and the ongoing development of greater longevity of years. Yet we are unable to purchase more years of life no matter how much we have to spend. The saying, time is money, exemplifies the dilemma. We seek to purchase back our own quickly vanishing lifetime with the application of monetary trade strategies. And this is the basis of our dollar value, the expense of our livelihood and our labor. In so doing, we can acquire food and items necessary for survival and comfort, making them more available more easily and creating less and less time-consuming work for ourselves to do. While this is not an immoral goal in itself, trying to prosper is a worthy goal, but when a system is applied that impoverishes and enslaves others in order to attain prosperity, then I must point out that such a design is a heinous and deplorable evil, an evil that we have seen committed all too often in history. But the acquisition of great wealth and power does not address the most fundamental dilemma, the approach of life's certain end. Monetary exchange is a finite compensation for the hopeless state of the human condition in which no amount of gold or worldly power can overcome, and which ultimately reinforces the mystification of the human consciousness and empowers religion over us in its many forms. That is to say that the despair of our quickly fading lives gives many over to a desperate effort to accumulate wealth and to turn others to fables and superstition. The international system of banking, as it now stands, is a most malevolent force for the degeneration and degradation of man as any we have ever seen in the age of the world. Purchase of entire human lifespans of labor and all of one's efforts by creating compounding monetary debt and furthermore the exchange of spiritual absolution at the hands of perverse priestcraft by payment for coin. Indulgences, as it were, are themes we must encounter over and over again in history. Perhaps our human avarice for worldly materials and temporal power must indicate our inward attempt to compensate for a limited and intrepid lifespan. Perhaps it is the horror of one's own unrecognized existence which causes so many to flail as one in the agony of drowning, and in the madness they think it is not wanting to rob other men's lives in order to satisfy their own well-being at the expense of all others. Subtly, with uneven scales, and unnoticed percentages in the international elite are glorified looters and pillagers. In so doing, every religious excuse and canonized device of sacred justification may be applied as men seek to assuage their own burning conscience, knowing that they have been merciless and ravenous in their plundering and ruin of their own neighbors. But men cannot escape their own account of who they are, and their own sense of guilt and shame cannot be covered or hidden even with all the riches of the world. The religious system of Rome has sought only 
to make a justification for murder and political conquest where none exists. A man cannot dissolve his own inner voice or absolve the damage he has done to others, whether he seeks mediation or consults voodoo priests or gets the acquisition of greater wealth. He cannot quiet the inner voice of his own reproach. We are seeking to address the uncertainty and finality of our own end, our own abject state of powerlessness to its supreme closing influence. Even as we yet live, we cannot find mercy for ourselves unless we have shown mercy to others. Here's another quote by Eustace Mullins, 1992. The world order has no religious, political, or economic program except world slavery. Only by subduing all potential opposition can the parasite guarantee his position of lodging on the host. The world order sets up countless groups to promote any type of idea, and then sets up other groups to fanatically oppose them. But the masters have no dedication to anything except slavery. As R.E. McMaster wrote in The Reaper, the goal of the international communism is not to destroy Western international debt capitalism. The goal of international communism is to enslave mankind at the behest of Western international debt capitalism. This is a quote by from Ezra Pound book, or, or, I'm sorry, Eustace C. Mullins, published by Ezra Pound Institute, The World Order, Our Secret Rulers. And here's another uh, a subheading, One Roman Order. In the study of empire builders, we begin to seek the full magnitude of Christ's work, especially since he walked with his, own, his people and was identified among the common men of his time. His mission and teaching stood in opposition to the worldly system and countered the wealthy and powerful who sought only to rise in their position and insulate their own privileged stations and gains and gain comfort, seeking only to prolong their own lives. But the Lord walked among us as an every man. There was nothing in his appearance or manner which would cause him to stand out among the crowds in the region of Judea. Ultimately, he would stand out and was counted from among his brethren, the descendants of the tribe of Judah, a fact which was surely not overlooked by those in Rome, who collected intelligence from every sector of their vast empire and understood very well their religio-political dynamics that drove the common sensibilities of the Jewish people. Indeed, Herod had scores of children murdered in the botched attempt to neutralize the rise of the long-prophesied Messiah. And experts now estimate that the proverbial three wise men Eastern Magi, schooled in the ancient mysteries, followed the prominent starlight for more than two years before arriving in Bethlehem. And so we can see that while Israel was unprepared for the day of her visitation, the world of occult mystery schools and arcane wisdom was not remiss in recognizing the prophetic signs. We cannot think that the concept of a prophetically forecast and all-powerful liberator Messiah rising out of ancient prophecies and the noble bloodline of the Davidic throne were somehow outside the intellectual grasp of the Roman governing administration. The Roman system of religio-pedagogy incorporated every pagan mystical tradition in the known world into its pantheon, and likewise, it is implausible that the societal importance and gravity fell within Israel proper concerning the prophecy of the Messiah to arise from the land of Judea could truly ever be overlooked by the powerful priestcraft of Rome. In fact, it is due to these prophetic themes of ancient scripture and the people of Israel that were so energized by them that the first caused Rome to get involved carefully in the region with its armies to begin with. The messianic promise is central to Israel's religious 
literary, and cultural identity. It is impossible that Roman officials were unaware of this legendary figure, a rising god-king of Hebrew scripture and prophecy. We must understand that the law of Rome was absolute. There is no king but Caesar. The power of Christ is emblematic as he overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple and to draw forth as disciples, even tax collectors, to his high, higher calling and stood fearless against the ultra-violence of the elitist imperial oppressors who were savaging his people. His legacy will continue to signal throughout world history and for all time, defining those among us who God stands with and those he stands against. We must point out that usury and financial servitude are absolutely forbidden in scriptures. I'm talking about Exodus 22:25. It has it was against such a system of evil in Egypt that God made an epic example in freeing his people. The extraordinary life and profound message of Christ is not obscured by his complex stance against the status quo of human bondage, corruption, and religious hypocrisy, but rather it becomes a single moral dimension that becomes a call for proactive revolution. The Lord speaks and acts with an example far removed from the philosophical pacifism and the benign figure represented by the modern pop culture and churchianity. We are confronted with the powerful, timeless provocation of words and conscientious deeds which collide with every generation and seem to grow more and more prescient with each passing year as Jesus displays his true nature for the record. While many expected that he might be sent as a man from God, his contemporary followers could not immediately grasp that he was in fact deity in his most elemental form and that nothing was impossible for him. So we have a quote from the book of Mark. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples saying unto them, whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah and others say one of the prophets. And he said to them, but whom do you say that I am. I'm going here with another quote by a book by Chuck Baldwin, April 4th, 2013, No King But Caesar, titled this book. As Jewish leaders said to Pilate when they tried to coerce him to crucify Jesus, we have no king but Caesar. Remember, these were Jewish Pharisees, scribes, elders, priests, and high priests. They prided themselves in being scholars of the Torah. They believed themselves to be the sole interpreters of the Mosaic Law. Yet the very first commandment of the Decalogue handed down to, the, to Moses is, You shall have no other gods before me. But in order to stay in the good graces of the Roman government, they emphatically proclaimed that they recognized no king but Caesar. Remember, Caesar insisted every, everyone recognize him to be not only king, but God, to be Loyal to Rome, one had to acknowledge the deity of Caesar. One could worship any other god they wanted to as long as Caesar was acknowledged as sovereign. Historians famously say that there was as many gods in Rome as people. Rome prided itself in being religiously pluralistic and tolerant. First century Christians were not persecuted because they worshipped Jesus, they were persecuted because they refused to worship Caesar. They refused to acknowledge the sovereignty of Caesar. It was for this reason that they that early Christians were fed to lions and made support in amphitheaters. In their desire to use the Roman government to advance their own agenda, crucifying Christ and later his disciples and apostles, the Jewish leaders were quite willing to acknowledge the deity and sovereignty of Caesar, even though doing so was a blatant violation of the first commandment given by Jehovah to Moses. It is more than interesting that after conducting a secret illegal trial of Jesus and blaspheming God and declaring Caesar king, that they immediately afterwards sat down to observe Passover. 
No wonder Jesus called them hypocrites. And again, that was a quote by No King But Caesar by Chuck Baldwin. The indiscriminate hubris and cruelty of Rome was meant to be Jesus' final defeat. But like the genius of military strategy upon the battlefield, the bondage and humor of the Messiah drew the enemy into division and certain defeat. Everywhere in Scripture, the biblical prophecy, we find that Christ reveals himself, making plain the final controversy, and clear, clearly identifies the contestants in the monolithic battle appointed at the climax of Earth's history. Like the children of Israel, we are all brought to this ultimate decision. Who is the final authority, Caesar in Rome or Christ in Zion? The crime of unmitigated Roman brutalization committed against Christ would then unveil the true violence of his own coming conquest and thus defy all human understanding as he subjected death by returning to life three days later, demonstrating true omnipotent power. While many teachers fail to see clearly the divine contest and the conflict waged over this absolutely essential question, we must all take a stand and decide who we will declare our allegiance to. The world is brought to a valley of great decision. Whose claim of ultimate authority is true? The kingdom of Caesar, seated in Rome, or that of the Messiah who will soon reign over the whole earth from Zion? Amazingly, the Messianic doctrine, the glorious gospel of salvation, has described in great detail the risen king of kings ascending into heaven 40 days after his resurrection, leaving the completion of his mission in the hands of his disciples and withholding his final judgment for some 2,000 years to this very day. It is curious that the implications of the Almighty as he stood before them in human form was far beyond the reach of any of them to grasp, except those in Rome who knew intuitively that the fulfillment of messianic prophecy in the humble and conquered territory of Judea would spell the doom and the invalidation of all Roman authority. They could not allow any defiance against their absolute rule. Rome considered its own democratic process to be divine in itself. And later, after the Roman Republic was shattered by the dictatorial machinations of Julius Caesar, the subsequent line of emperors wasted no time in declaring their own power to be uniquely divine. We must recognize the highly significant moment in history where Christ is appointed to suddenly appear conceived miraculously in his mother's womb. Eventually, the political corruption in Rome would be complete and the succession of imperial rulers would become fully deluded into believing that they were themselves gods, self-proclaimed divine oppressors, and that they ought to receive adoration and worship, even placing their own faces on the statues of their deities so that men directed worship at their own likeness. Here we have another quote, Roman Portrait Sculpture, the Stylistic Cycle, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The development of Roman portraiture is characterized by a stylistic cycle that alternately emphasized realistic or idealizing elements. Each stage of Roman portraiture can be described as alternately veristic and classicizing. As each imperial dynasty sought to emphasize certain aspects of representation in an effort to legitimize their own authority or align themselves with revered predecessors. Beginning with Augustus, the emperors of the imperial period made full use of the medium's potential as a tool for communicating specific ideologies to the Roman populace 
Augustus official portrait type was disseminated throughout the empire and combined the hero- heroicizing idealization of Hellenistic Republican ideals. So let's go on here. The identity of Rome as the fourth beast or fourth incarnation in historical succession of the uncontested universal government power allows us to more clearly perceive the characteristics and marks of this system illustrated in biblical prophecy. For instance, the mark and the image of the beast described in Revelation are no longer metaphysical ideas to come, but rather centuries-old principles which were at work continuously from the time of Christ's mission until today. Unless we are confronted with the instruction of scripture and prophecy itself, we cannot interpret its imagery, nor decipher the symbols, and therefore the biblical mysteries remain locked to those who cannot discern them. To be sure, Rome perfected the practice of creating, worshipping, and setting up engraved images dedicated to various gods, who then received payment and tribute, indicating Again, that man's worship is accompanied with the payment of coin. It is important to distinguish that the ability to carve one's likeness into stone in the fashion which religious idols were hewn has become a powerful instrument of empire and the politically elite classes of ancient Rome would not hesitate to use graven images as a powerful source of propaganda necessary to shape the minds of the public, to convey and reinforce one's own sense of religious and political authenticity. The introduction of the imperial image of Nero or Constantine, for instance, into stone and on top of the popular venerated marble body of a Roman deity becomes an essential and influential instrument of Roman statecraft, combining the right of sacred religious veneration with politically correct nationalism into a singular patriotic duty. So here, let's read the commandments. You're quoted here. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any other graven image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Book of Isaiah, they that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witness. They see not, nor know, that they may be ashamed. Book of Isaiah again, Assemble yourselves, and come, draw near together, ye that are escaped out of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up wood for their graven image, and pray unto a God that cannot save. So as we go on, the indication of the whole scope of Jesus' life must be considered as many empires and mighty kingdoms have come and gone in the many passing centuries since the Assyrian dynasty, 570 BC, which brought their enemies crashing down on the tribes of northern Israel, 10 of Israel's 12 tribes in the northern region, including Megiddo, the prophetic location of Armageddon, were utterly destroyed, while untold numbers of survivors were led into captivity in the lands of Assyria, never to be heard from again. The region of the kingdom of Judea, I'm sorry, the region of the kingdom of Judah and the few tribes of the southern southern area remained after the Assyrian conquest, and the legacy of David's throne in the city of Jerusalem, housing the temple of God, would continue on. Later, Jerusalem would be taken into captivity, and the tribe of Judah, too, would suffer bondage in Babylonia, and subsequently, Persia also would deal closely with the children of Israel who 
would ultimately rebuild the fallen city of Jerusalem again after 70 years of Babylonian captivity. This upheaval of the collapse of Babylon and the rise of Persia in its place becomes the central framework in the body of biblical history across numerous books of the Bible, including several prophetic books setting the stage for the coming of Christ. Thus, we see the acceleration of the Assyrian power, which took the northern tribes of Israel into captivity only to be defeated by Babylon. The northern tribes were swept away, 734 to 729 BC, and the kingdom of Judea alone remained for a time until Jerusalem was besieged and burned by the king of Babylon, 586 BC, who led them away captive as well in accordance with their imperial policy. It was during this 70-year captivity that Persia, the Median army, defeated Babylon, and in 539 BC, the first groups of Jewish settlers returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Later, Artaxerxes commissioned the remnant of Judea to rebuild and return 440 BC to the city of David in the city walls once again were built, and yet it was not until after the decline of Persia, much later during the rise of the Fourth Empire, which is Rome, that the Messiah appeared to the world anointed in the ordination of his eternal kingdom. And we're looking at a quote from Daniel. After this, I saw in thy visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it was diverse from all the other beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. Thus he, the heavenly angel that was speaking to him, said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and break it into pieces. Another quote from the book of Daniel, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, upon thy holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The streets, Jerusalem, shall be built again, and the wall will be built even in troublesome times. So we go on. We are merely observers and researchers of history and not experts, and yet these simple metrics of prophecy are easily calculated and plainly evident as a matter of recorded history. It is carefully observed that the Hebrew calendar was based on seven-year increments called Shevuot, which we see in the example of the 70-year captivity or in the legal tradition of Jubilee year, which has seven periods of seven years, sabbatical years, equaling 49, after which debts were cleared and captives set free, and also in the seven-day Sabbath cycles observed each week. In this view, we can calculate the prophetic vision which proclaimed those seven weeks of years, 49 years, and three score and two weeks being 62 weeks of years, 434 years, for a total of 483 years. We must recognize that Ezra was sent to do preliminary inspections of the city of Jerusalem in 458 BC, and later the decree to rebuild came from Artaxerxes to Nehemiah in 445 BC. If we split the difference between roughly the year 451 and advance into the future 483 years, we land precisely in the year 32, approximately one year before the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem for the Passover. The intricacy of Daniel's visions and prophecy are world-renowned and were well-read by ancient scholars and mystics throughout the history. It is significant that the Almighty had been so patient to reveal the light of life, as he is called, until a time in history when humanity might forever remember the conflict that was destined to arise. 
we must recognize the identifying characteristics and traits of God, Jesus' Heavenly Father, declaring the tremendous mystery to his disciples that the Heavenly Father and he are one spirit. The confederacy of Lucifer is in abject ruin as heaven's eternal throne and the salvation of humanity are revealed in the one living Lord, our kinsman redeemer, who has was always to take one human form, which must certainly be the highest affront to a host of fallen angelic traitors, who certainly viewed humanity as unworthy to attain to the glory and the authority that God had begun to bestow upon them in Eden and would be completed ultimately in the predestination of life and the mission of Jesus Christ. Daniel is very specific in his prophetic vision writings that four empires are to come and the historic picture could not be more precise in describing successive rise of Babylon, then Persia with media, then the Greeks, and then finally Rome. So we see evidence in these three imperial systems of world dominion, which preceded the rise of Roman hegemony, the culmination of all the Luciferic ideals, false teachings, and pagan mysteries into one system. Rome developed a universal religious system of priests who offered any religious ritual imaginable and gave men any religious cultic ceremony they desired as long as it was subordinated to the deity and sovereignty of Caesar's newly minted imperial power. All pagan idolatry was unified into a single system and emerged, emerged with the secular state calendar. Every veneration of earth and sea and every defiled ritual of heathen cultism found a home in Rome, which was become the great central city of all the profane idolatries from iniquity, which were all held in adoration and unison through the great Roman pantheon. We must recognize the appearance of the Messiah in world history was not a random event, but had occurred just as Daniel had described in the 70 weeks prophecy, which is during the reign of the fourth beast, which is Rome. Okay, so let's just pause there till next time, and we'll do another reading. I hope you liked it.